Brethren, what is your spirit really like? Most of you know that Mr. Armstrong came to understand years ago, of course, way back at the beginning, that we do not have an immortal soul. And man is a soul. He does not have a soul. But he did come to understand later that we do have a spirit. And there is a spirit in man. That is the real you. That is your character, your personality, the way you think, the way you are, a spirit essence connected with your human brain. A very important thing to understand. And perhaps at that time, he began to think in his own mind because a few years later, he began to come out with the understanding of the spirit in man, that there is something still left. When we die, our body goes back to the dust, dust thou art, and unto dust shall you return. But there is something beside that the spirit essence of what you are. And he began to get his mind on that because of what happened to his own son. And he preached on that, turned it over and over in his mind. As I've told you about the thing of man becoming God, how he preached on that so long, he also got on the spirit in man. So people in the headquarters church would look at, here he goes again on the spirit in man. (laughs) He preached on that for months. But I'm glad he did, looking back, because he turned it over and over, even in public and In that sense, anyone who had an objection or a point to correct would give it to him. He'd make it better and better as he went along and more and more thorough. And my subject is not the spirit in man per se, but as you'll see, we most of you understand that and you've read about it. But we do need to really understand what that involves. Later, he came to understand the spirit in man. Back in Genesis chapter 1, something we often go back to, or at least I do, the very beginning, Genesis chapter 1, God created the heavens and the earth. It doesn't say 6,000 years ago, by the way. It may have been billions of years ago. It doesn't say when. It says in the beginning. And then later in verse 26, then God said, let us. The one we call God the Father and now Christ, the Word, and then the Logos, the spokesman were together. Two personalities in the family of God, totally one. Jesus said, I and the Father are one. He said, or they said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them have dominion. So man was given from the beginning a kind of mind to judge, to have judgment and discernment. Man was given creative imagination above all other creatures. You know that. The big lions and tigers and gorillas, they don't put us in cages. We put them in cages. (laughs) We're much smaller, weaker physically but we're made in God's image. We're made to be God's full sons, totally like God. What an awesome opportunity we have. What an awesome calling we have. And brethren, when you look up at the sky, sometimes as you pray or meditate, it's good to do that when you can, go outdoors even and pray and look at the sky. Think of that. That great God up there is making you in His image and you are His begotten son or daughter right now. You're not totally born of God, but you're begotten as a son or daughter. We are now the children of God, it tells us. Right now, we're the children of God. And we're going to be full sons and daughters of God later and be made spirit, just like God, with awesome powers. We can appreciate a beautiful, complicated symphony. We can appreciate the various nuances of human behavior and even back off and laugh at ourselves. Animals can't do that. They don't have that kind of mind. They don't have that kind of perception. They don't even come close. No other creature even starts to begin to get ready to come close. 
man invents the computer to put, you know, missiles and whatever into outer space, trying now to, quote, conquer the universe, which is kind of amusing to God. I'm sure as he's out there maybe billions of light years away, and man gets compared to the earth, let's say this microphone is the earth, we get out about this far, and we say, we've conquered outer space, and outer space is way out there, and God says, you've just stepped your foot in the edge of the Pacific Ocean, and walked out about three feet, and you said, we've conquered the Pacific Ocean. <laughs> no, you haven't. You haven't conquered anything. You just barely. Later on, we will conquer space, in the sense, because God will give us spirit bodies, and the spirit in man that we have now will be in a spirit body, and then we were able to go, not at the speed of light, which is quite frankly quite slow. It would take us millions of light years to get to some of the planets we have already discovered. And the scientists tell us there are all kinds of planets and even perhaps universes out there we haven't even discovered yet. But then we will go at the speed of thought, like God does. We'll say we want to be there, and we'll be there. And the Bible certainly indicates that. We need to think about it, deeply appreciate as we look up at the sky, as we see a little baby, as we see beautiful scenery that God made, as we hear beautiful music, I mean real music, not noise, <laughs> that God made possible through the creative imagination he's put in human beings. Man alone has that kind of creative imagination and judgment to be like God and so on. For we're made to be full sons of God, Turn with me, if you would, back to 1 Corinthians at this point. 1 Corinthians, brethren. I'll open this tea. You better be careful here. First Corinthians chapter 1, and let's begin here in verse... Um, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians 2, chapter 2, and verse 7. Paul writes, But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery. The mystery... You know, we don't understand why we're here. What's going on? What's the purpose of life? As I told you in my grandmother's generation, and she used to hear this old Victrola record, and I heard it as a boy. Ah, sweet mystery of life. Someday we'll find you. And we have found it, if you understand. We do know and know that we know the ultimate purpose of human existence. We're the only church on earth that does. That is the true church. Those people that have descended from Mr. Armstrong and understand that. We speak the wisdom of God in the mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew, for had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, eye has not seen nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. It's hard to grasp the awesome things that God has in mind for us as we will interact with God the Father and interact with the one who became Jesus Christ and fellowship and have conversations with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Sarah and Ruth and the great men and women of God down through the ages and share with them and learn from them and perhaps be on various projects along with them. But God has revealed them to us through His Spirit for the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. We don't understand those things humanly at all. Scientists can't understand. None of us in this room had the kind of mind of, that Einstein and Bernstein and all the other great brilliant people of the earth have. I don't have that kind of mind, and I don't think any of you do. But if you do come up, we'll get a 
conversation going, I'll check you out. <laughs> I'm kidding. But we don't, God has not called those kinds of minds yet. He might call a few later, but I don't know of any now. But God has called us and given us of his spirit. For what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of man which is in him? So this is the basic scripture. There are many scriptures talking about it that I've given in a sermon on the spirit in man, going back to Job and elsewhere. But this is a key one. Who understands what man is really all about and the hopes and dreams and the plans and sometimes the evil deeds and the lusts and the dark corridors of the human mind that we can get our minds into and the games we play. Yet man can understand that often about other men and we can understand human beings and we can understand all kinds of nuances of things because we have not just a brain, we have a human spirit with our brain that greatly enlarges the capacity. So what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of man? This is not the spirit of God. This is the spirit of man, the spirit essence joined with your human brain and my human brain, which is in him. Even so, no one knows the things of God except the spirit of God. So the spirit of God, as we've explained, joins with, unites with the spirit in man and enlarges our capacity so we can understand spiritual things. Now, we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is from God, that we might know the things that have been given to us freely by God. These things also we speak not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual with spiritual, or uniting spiritual concepts with physical concepts in all kinds of ways the different free-flowing paraphrases bring this up. This can have a variety of meanings. And most of us understand that. Some of us in the church, frankly, some are babes. They don't understand all these things yet. But you can see spiritual analogies or spiritual examples, and you can project from that if you really understand the mind of God and understand principles that apply to other situations to understand the mind of God. And God tells us that throughout the Bible because you have the Spirit of God united with the Spirit in man. And so you compare spiritual principles and spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man, the normal carnal man, you read, you hear various sermons out here, these Protestant preachers, sometimes they'll have bits and pieces of the truth. But I've never listened to one of them yet, but what they go off here and off there a little bit here and there because they don't understand. They have part of the truth. They don't have all the truth. They don't have God's Spirit unless they keep God's commandments. I'm not trying to judge them. I'm just saying what the Bible says. You all know that. First John chapter 2, verse 4. He that saith, I know him, and keepeth, not knoweth, but keepeth not his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. So any person, any preacher who says he knows God and does not keep God's commandments is a liar. He doesn't understand. God has not called him. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. Great preachers, great theologians, you can go up to them. I think some of them will begin to talk to Mr. Ames and some of us and me and others of us and ask us questions one of these days. And I hope they will. Some of them may be sincere. Some very few may repent. Most won't. We'll clearly explain that the Christ of the Bible was absolutely the God of the Old Testament. He was the Lord. 
He's the one who said, I am the eternal who brought you out of the land of Egypt. He's the one who gave the Ten Commandments. He's the one who gave the Sabbath day and the holy days. And you guys say you want to follow him? Why don't you do it? Now, well, you know, and they'll go like this and they'll play the little games. I grew up in southern Missouri and we were fishing a lot and uh, wading in the streams. And a lot of, some of you know this, we talk about uh, crawfishing or uh, what is, maybe I don't, anyway, it's like the, uh, it's like the uh, crawfish, you know, you, you try to catch these little things and they kind of go back under the rock, you know, you reach for them, they go back under this rock and they go, it's kind of amusing to watch them. That's what these people do because they don't want to clearly face the truth. I'm not trying to condemn them. They're not here. They won't hear this, hopefully. Some of you sneak it out and send it to them. <laughs> They're not deliberately evil, most of them. They're blinded. God has allowed them to be blinded, but their human mind plays tricks on them. And they don't want to accept the truth. They won't. The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. Keeping this old Jewish Sabbath, they think, that's foolish. Nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. God's Holy Spirit, uniting with our spirit, helps the Bible become very clear. You don't have to be nutty. It's frankly very simple. The paradigm is just that Christ was the God of the Old Testament, and God gave a whole way of life. He gave the Ten Commandments, and then the Christ of the New Testament came along as he came in the human flesh and magnified those commandments, did away with the need for the sacrifices and washings, and so we not only are told not to kill, we're told not even to hate. We're not only told not to commit adultery, we're not, we're told not to even lust after a woman and so on. We're magnified. Doesn't do away with the law. He simply magnified it. He didn't do away with the Sabbath. He commanded. He showed them how to keep it and made it possible. He wanted to let the disciples eat and grab corn and do various things on the Sabbath. He worked and did things and set us an example in that way. He magnified the law. And so it's not some new paradigm that all the old law was cast in an ash can like the Protestants generally think. And so now we just have faith in Christ and we start all over again. And that's not the paradigm at all. That's not the model of true Christianity. But the converted mind can see that and understand that. The unconverted mind has been so filled with this stuff they can't. And these truths are foolishness. Nor can they discern them because they're spiritually discerned. But he who is spiritual... If he's converted by God, conquered by God, as Armstrong used to say, you know, I think half of you people are not even converted. And he was right. Later he said only about one-tenth of you are converted. And he was much closer to the truth on that, of course, at the end there, which we all see. Perhaps even less than one-tenth actually followed through and kept on obeying the whole way of God that they were taught. But... He says a really converted person is one who is conquered by God. He will do whatever God says. He won't try to water things down. He won't try to compromise. He won't play funny games. He will say, yes, Lord, once he understands it. He will say, yes, Lord, and really want to do it. And once in a long time, he won't be praying and studying. He'll slip up and make a mistake like many of God's servants have done, but he won't do it deliberately or continuously. So he who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. A truly spiritual person can grasp all kinds of things in this world, the games that are being played in our election. And I've told you, brethren here, and you brethren who hear this later, elsewhere, even you brethren in Australia and South Africa, pray for us Americans. 
we're in the biggest fix we've ever been that I know of in the history of this nation in about 10 different ways. And one of those ways is the candidates for president of the United States. There's never been such an array of people that normally would never have even been up there in the first place. Odd situations. Really odd. And God knows that. We need to beseech God himself to intervene and guide it for good. He probably will give us one of those three, but we should ask that he would give us the one that would hurt us the least and would be the best for the sake of his people and for the sake of his work so the work can carry on. We need that. We can grasp those things. Yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. Carnal mind. Well, you're questioning our democratic process, yet you better believe I'm questioning the democratic process. God never had any such thing. And that's going to be passe in a very few years. It won't be carried on at all. 20 or 30 years from now, there'll be no such thing as voting and politicking and posturing and all that kind of stuff. The one who makes the biggest promises usually gets elected. That's not God's way. For he who has known the mind, or for who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him. But we, he said, and he's talking about he and the other leaders, no doubt, we have the mind of Christ. And it didn't mean the whole church because, of course, the book was divided into chapters later and notice the very next verse. And I, brethren, could not speak to you, you brethren, in the church as carnal, as spiritual, excuse me, but as carnal as to babes in Christ. Most of them were not spiritual. They didn't grasp the even full spiritual intent of what Paul was writing right here. They weren't filled with and led by God's Spirit. And Paul knew that when he wrote this to them and said, most of you are not fully converted. You have not been conquered by God. So we have to understand that and seek to have the mind of God and seek to want to be truly conquered by God in every way. I want to be there when Christ comes and be in his kingdom. And I think all of you do, or you wouldn't be here. Some few may be playing various games. All of us play some games some of the time. Let's not kid ourselves. We all have human nature. But overall, I'm sure that at least 90 or 99% of you are here because you want to learn the truth. So we have the spirit of God joined with our human spirit and then that spirit or that human spirit will be of course the spirit in man I should say will be joined to a spirit body in the resurrection turn now to 1 Corinthians 15 if you would 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and notice what it says here uh, I can catch my notes properly beginning in verse 35 he says but someone will say, how are the dead raised and with what body do they come? Foolish one, what you sow is not made alive unless it dies. And what you sow, you do not sow the body that shall be, but mere grain, perhaps wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as it pleases him and to each seed its own body. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there's one kind of flesh of men, another of beasts, another of fish, another of birds. There are also celestial bodies, the sun, moon, and stars, of course, and terrestrial physical bodies, earthly bodies. But the glory of the celestial is one, and the glory of the terrestrial is another. There is one glory of the sun, powerful, brilliant light compared to the moon. Another glory of the moon, a lesser glory. And another glory of the stars. For one star differs from another star in glory, so also is the resurrection. 
to the degree you really overcome, surrender your life to God, go above and beyond and walk with God with all your heart and all your strength and all your mind, you will be given more glory, more power, more opportunity to serve. It's not just a matter of showing off. Tremendous opportunities throughout all eternity in the very family of God. So is the resurrection from the dead. You see, one star differs from another in glory. The body is sown in corruption, is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. When you see a person being buried and you realize their body is going to decompose and rot, it's, it's in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. And God will put our spirit that essence in your mind that contains your personality, your mind, your attitude. God knows your attitude, your thoughts, your hopes, your dreams, the way you react, the way you are, the real you is in that spirit. He will put that inside a spirit body that can never die at the resurrection. And Jesus, of course, showed we will be able to appear and look like a man if we want to, to talk to the humans on earth while during the millennium and the great white throne judgment. We'll recognize one another, but we won't look exactly like we do today. My wife mentioned a number of months ago that we we're talking about this, and I've generally emphasized the spirit, the male spirit dominating the male personality. And she said, well, I have a female spirit. And I don't think I could just suddenly have a male spirit and think like a man. And I discussed that with our headquarters team and they all agreed that that is true. You women won't really just think exactly like a man. You'll have a female spirit, but it will be the real you. But you will be glorified. You'll have a spirit body. You will be powerful. And you won't be cringing at some dictator. You'll be like, you know, some of most, many of you women have had little boys. And they go, oh, throw a little fit when they're three years old. Do you cringe before them? I hope not. You say, shut up and give them a swipe. You know? So when the bad guys come along in the millennium, you may have a female spirit, but you can give them a swat, so to speak. You can say, go this way, or this is the way, walk you in it, just like a man, perhaps in a different way, because you'll be filled with and led by God's Spirit and have a spirit body in the resurrection. So those are things to think about and meditate upon. So we are all going to have this kind of a spirit body. The spirit contains, of course, the zeal, the passion and so forth that we have in our bodies and in our, our personality today. I wanted to describe, I'm looking at those words because I'm thinking about David's spirit. King David, as you know, tells us in several places, was a man after God's own heart. A man after God's own heart. Think about the zeal, the enthusiasm, the dedication, the adoration for God, and the passion that David had. That was part of his human spirit magnified, no doubt, by the Spirit of God. He worshiped God. He adored God. He came leaping and weaving, whirling, and wore a kind of a Scottish kilt-type outfit, I take it, when they were, you know, bringing the ark of, the God, of God back into Jerusalem. And his first wife, Michael, Saul's daughter, got all, because she always think comparing him to her dad and kind of resented him in a way, I guess. And so she made fun of him. Oh, the king of Israel is exposing himself to the young women today. Ha, ha, ha. Well, they cut her off. Apparently never lived with her again, and so on, because she was really arrogant against the king of Israel. Had a very rotten spirit, was not called, of course, so she'll come up and we can help teach her, or perhaps David will get a chance to teach her in the resurrection. 
But King David was absolutely not trying to show off. He was just worshiping God, adoring the great Creator who was allowing the ark of God to come up to the temple and no doubt singing and yelling and jumping and so on. And David was filled with that kind of passion. You read the Psalms and you begin to get that personality. My king, my God, my rock, my high tower, my savior. He went on and on about how great God is all through the Psalms. It's magnificent. And so when we see that, we see a little bit of the spirit of David and why God loved David and why David was a man after God's own heart. Another thing about King David that I have noticed a more recent date, I used to think about it, but meditated on it more recently the last few years, David must have had a wonderful human personality as well that God used, of course, more than most of us because he was surrounded by all these mighty men. And these mighty men were bigger and stronger than him. You read about what they did. David was not some little kid. You know, the Protestant uh, picture Sunday school books that I used to read, they all show David like he's about, a, what, a 14 or 16-year-old kid who hadn't developed, and here's big Goliath and this little kid. No, they wasn't like that. The Jewish uh, legend, tradition is he was about age 20. That's probably pretty close to the mark. He was of average size, and nothing indicates he was tiny or weak at all. He himself killed hundreds of men. He led them into battle. He did this, and he did that personally. Powerful. But he was not as big or as strong or as mighty of war personally, but he was the leader. But he must have had this tremendous personality to worship God, to get out his guitar or what, and sing songs and, and, you know, worship God and all these men gathered around and saw this enthusiastic, enthusiastic, passionate personality and it made them want to follow this man. And that personality is something God loved. One who had that kind of outflowing concern and that passion and that enthusiasm and that warmth and that tremendous love for music and love for the creation he talks about all through his psalms and elsewhere and was a tremendous human leader as well, a warmth and a charisma coming out from him in an unusual way. And yet because of that, he was very attractive to women, and because of his position, he was very attractive. And so he made one great huge mistake, and it was an awful mistake with Bathsheba, and we know that. Don't say Bathsheba had no part in it. She was not stupid. Nothing says she was a dodo bird. She knew this was the king's falcon, and she'd seen him out there before, and she comes out, strips off, and bathes herself right below the king's balcony. I'm sure she made it very interesting for King David. Nevertheless, he should have known better. He should have known better as God's servant, and he gave in to that. And God caused that child to die, and God caused his enemies to fight him from then on. Two of his own sons turned against him and could have killed him. Just one thing after the other, David had to suffer the rest of his life because of that. But he repented bitterly, and you read the story, he literally fell on the ground and didn't eat anything for a week. Just prayed on the earth, oh God, have mercy on me, have mercy on me. Read Psalm 51. He turned that same passion toward repenting, and he meant it, and God knew he repented. He drifted away from God for a few days or a few weeks, perhaps a few weeks, it may have been, or months. And God forgave it later because he sincerely repented deeply. Never did it again. David has read this before. Never again did anything like that. And God's word tells you that. So God doesn't expect us all to be perfect every minute of every day. He will forgive us if we turn to God with all our heart and all our mind and all our being, even if we make a mistake. 
But God does want us to turn to Him with all our hearts most of the time and have a passion for God like David did. And David was a wonderful example in that way. And his spirit was a wonderful spirit, a wonderful spirit. What an inspiring personality he had and will again have. It'll be fun to talk to King David in a few years, you know. <laughs> Say, wow, what? how did you feel like when that, you know, 11, 12-foot giant came out, you know, and what did you feel like when you went into battle in this situation and that situation and talk to David about all kinds of things? And he will talk to us and we'll interact with him in the spirit world. So David was a wonderful man and God loved David as going to make him king over all 12 tribes. So what is your spirit like? Do you have that kind of passion for God? Do you have that kind of profound love and worship and adoration for God? so that you literally lay down your life. Oh, how loved by thy law, it is my meditation all the day. Psalm 119, verse 97. Do you meditate on God's law, God's word, off and on all day? I don't. I don't do it as much as King David did, I'm sure. And David did do that, though. God didn't let that come in the Bible as some big lie. I meditate on that. Did God let a bunch of that stuff come in the word that was not true? No, he did not do that. Think about it. That's the way David was. Turn back to Jeremiah 17, brethren. Turn back to Jeremiah 17 now, if you would, and we'll catch some other very important principles here. Verse 5, Thus says the ever-living one, Jeremiah wrote, Jeremiah 17, verse 5, Cursed is the man who trusts in man. I know when I was getting in trouble occasionally with... Uh, couple of the leaders in Pasadena because I was not putting up with certain things that were happening. Two or three of my former students who were later than ministers said, Mr. Meredith, he said, you've learned, got to learn to get along with the fourth floor. Oh, fourth floor was where Mr. Armstrong and Ted's office was and Al Pertoons and so on. I didn't argue with them because I knew their attitude, but I thought in my mind, fourth floor? Way up beyond the fourth floor is the great glory of God and the throne of God. Let's get worrying so much about the fourth floor and playing political games. Those guys are all gone now. Every one of them who said those things has left the church. They didn't know where to look. You don't have fear of man. You better not look to man. You better not play politics with man. If any of you in this work want to get ahead, I hope you respect me and not dishonor me or betray me or be disloyal or try to start a coup or something like that. But you don't have to kiss up to me, as the kids say. A lot of the ministers and leaders back in Pasadena constantly were flattering Ted Armstrong. One leader, one of the... Uh, Elizabeth can tell you this story better than me, but he was he was a student body... Uh, not not He was a, a vice president of student affairs or some title like that, one of the big shots. And, and she said he would come and talk to the students in the dining room. That was part of his job. But when Ted Armstrong happened to come through the student center, which is very not about too often, I guess, he would literally, he would talk to them and in half sentence, he would leap up and run. Oh, how are you, Ted? And then, you know, all this stuff like they didn't exist. They thought, wow, we're nothing. He's over there with Ted Armstrong. Well, where is Ted Armstrong? I mean, to put him down, but, you know, they were trying to worship a man. That, that didn't get this guy ahead. He's a mess. He never put his faith and trust in God and he compromised that he's not in God's church now. He's not going to be in the first resurrection unless he bitterly repents, even though he was a minister. 
I'm sorry. I like his personality. Enjoyed being with him on a number of occasions or maybe hundreds of occasions, but whatever. The games they play to get ahead, to flatter the big shots. You don't need to do that. Your fear must be toward God. Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart departs from the Lord. He shall be like a shrub of the desert and shall not see when good comes. He's going to die, but shall inhabit parts, places in the wilderness and a salt land not inhabited. Blessed is the man who trusts, puts his trust in the ever-living one and whose hope is in the eternal. He shall be like a tree planted by the waters and so on. Then he says in verse 9, the heart is deceitful. What's he talking about? He's talking about one aspect of the spirit in man, the human heart, the human attitude, you see. The heart is deceitful above all things. That is the normal attitude of mind, of mind the mind has carnally cut off from God and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the eternal, search the heart. I test the mind. God tests my mind, my motives. He's testing your mind and your motives. Why do you do what you can do? So you can flatter, so you can get ahead. You're not going to get ahead in the work that way. You get ahead in the work. You get ahead in the church. You get ahead by God in every phase of your life by having the fear of God, the awe of God, the worship of God, the adoration of God, where from the heart you honestly want to honor God. You honestly want to honor God and do what God says and not compromise and not water it down. That's what God's looking for. I test the mind, even to give every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. Very important principle all the way through this 17th chapter of Jeremiah. Turn out of Proverbs, brethren, if you would. Proverbs chapter 14, we'll begin there. Proverbs chapter 14. This is the mind of God. Verse 30. A sound heart is life to the body, but envy is rottenness to the bones. Those that envy. I know I've had other ministers who have envied me and tried to overthrow me in various ways and put me down when it was very obvious at times. Some other others have been envied, and you have perhaps have envied different ones. Some of you women envy other women. Some envy certain people in their positions or what they have or whatever. We've all got to repent of that. I've had envy before at times. We all understand we need to recognize our heart. Envy is the rottenness of the bones. So God doesn't want that kind of spirit that is so constantly comparing with physical things and envying and that kind of thing. He who oppresses the poor reproaches his maker, but he who honors him has mercy on the needy. You don't envy those who are ahead of you, but you have mercy on those who are, in a sense, less well off than you are. And God wants that attitude, that spirit to help, to give, to serve, to have mercy on them in every way that you can. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 32. He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit. Yes, we have a human spirit. He who rules his spirit is better than he who takes a city. 
You can conquer a whole city, a whole nation, and you won't be as great in God's sight as this if you learn to rule your spirit, your attitude, your whole mind, the way you are and the way you think. That's so important to God because that's what's going to last forever, of course, and be part of your spirit essence in God's coming kingdom and in the resurrection. He says in chapter 17, Proverbs 17, 3, the refining pot is for silver and the furnace for gold. You see, you refine these these uh, metals by burning off the, the refuse and making the pure come right out. But the eternal tests the hearts. He's constantly working with us and refining us to make us like he is. He tests the hearts. He's testing that part of our human spirit that you could call the heart. Chapter 19, verse 22 and 3. Proverbs chapter 19. A man of great wrath will suffer punishment. For if you deliver him, you will have to do it again. Listen to counsel and receive instruction that you may be wise in your latter days. A man who is humble will be willing to listen to counsel. So many people act like they're converted, but they don't want to do what others say. I don't mean you always have to do what others say. You want to be sure it's according to God's word and God says in multitude of counsel and so on. But listen that you may be wise there are many plans in man's heart, you see, the attitude, the spirit. Nevertheless, the Lord's counsel, again, fear God. Look to what he says. That will stand. Then verse 22 is a very beautiful verse when you understand it. What is desired in a man is kindness. But if you look in the margin, it says literally, literally loving kindness. What is desired in a man this is no doubt by God himself, is loving kindness. And you know, that's one of the main things that people will remember the rest of their lives and on over into eternity. Were you a kind man, a kind woman, a good man, a good woman? Now, there are salesmen who come up and says, how are you, George? And how's the kids? And how's the wife? And let me sell you this car. You see, there are those kinds of people that don't necessarily portray sincerity. But I'm talking about a person who is genuinely kind and patient and merciful and giving. I remember a hail fellow well met we had out a few years ago in one of the other places, and he was very charismatic, and people liked him. And he managed to turn against me two or three fellows that I helped train and was planning to use one of them as a top man in the work and everything. He was able to get around and make little comments and twist their minds. And he led a whole group out of the church of God. So you can have human personality and it's not, you know, being, being friendly, real friendly, and yet not have the genuine loving kindness. So be sure it's genuine, brethren. That's important. But what is desired a man is loving kindness. And a poor man is better than a liar. And God wants us to reflect all these things, of course. Proverbs 28. Proverbs 28. Another aspect here that ties in with what we saw at the very beginning in 1 Corinthians 2, he says here in, in chapter 28, verse 5, Evil men do not understand justice, but those who seek the eternal understand all. In other words, if you really seek God and you're close to God and you're walking with God, what do you then have? To a certain extent, none of us have it perfectly, but to a certain degree, you have the mind of God. You think like God thinks, and therefore you are able to evaluate in a right way world leaders, 
other people to a degree, situations, and see it from God's mind to the degree that you are walking with God and filled with and led by God's Spirit. So, those who seek the eternal understand all. That's very meaningful. The next chapter book is, is Ecclesiastes. I just thought we'd go ahead to that while we're here. Ecclesiastes, brethren, and the very last two verses. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 12. He says, Further, my son, be admonished of the making of many books. There is no end, and much study is wearisome to the flesh. I every now and then remind myself of that because I tend to read a lot more than I need to, but just you want to read, learn, read, learn, and so on. And much study is a great weariness to the flesh. And as they get older, my eyes get tired more quickly, and you can't, you know, there's one book you better really read. This is it in my left hand. <laughs> one book that matters. Read other books occasionally, of course, about world events and things that tie in with it, but don't get bogged down in all this stuff. Let us therefore hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God. What's the main thing God starts off with? The book of Proverbs. The beginning of wisdom is what? Fear God. Throughout the Bible you hear that. Fear God and keep His commandments. For this is the whole man. The whole duty of man. But the Jewish translation has it. The whole man. Man is whole if he learns to fear God and keep His commandments. That gives you wholeness. You trust in God. You know God is there. You rely on God. And you keep His commandments. You do what He says. That makes you whole. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether it's good or evil. Fear God and keep His commandments. This is the whole man. And so that attitude of having the real awe of God is something that every great servant of God has had, man or woman. Everyone starts out right there, the fear of God. Turn back to Genesis, if you would. I know when I was first converted, my two great heroes in the Bible, as I have mentioned, I guess, were David in the Old Testament, because he was always fighting and winning battles, and he was an exciting personality, and the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, because he was roaring around and getting thrown in jail and getting beat up and serving God with all of his being, and so I, you know, it was exciting, and he was a wonderful servant of God. Later, I've come to identify more with Abraham as well, because he was ahead of Moses and ahead of David, the father, the father of the faithful. And in the New Testament, I've learned to identify more with John, because he exemplified in his, no doubt, his life at the end of his life, not the beginning, but at the end of his life, and in his writings, love. He talks about love more than any other writer in the New Testament over and over again. This is love. God is love, he kept saying in so many different ways. Anyway, turn back to Genesis chapter 12. Here's the beginning of Abraham. It shows how now the Eternal had said to Abram, Verse 1, get out of your country from your kindred, your father's house, to land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. He was going to give him, of course, the gates of his enemies. He enlarged the land as he kept talking about it. Finally, the whole earth was involved, as it tells us in Romans 4. I will bless you and make your name, everything you stand for, great. And you will be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And certainly he's done that with... United States and the British Commonwealth nations helping us win all the major battles and giving us all this land and these physical blessings. 
These politicians out there and most of these so-called educators, they don't know. They think that this great, wonderful democracy idea has made us great. That's not what has made us great. And God is going to rub our faces in it, brethren, I hypothesize, over the next 10 or 15 years or less and bring us down. And we're going to learn that the democratic process can bring about horrible things. Horrible things. And man will come to understand that. That's not going to save man. What gave us this great land from sea to shining sea to the mountains to the valleys, all the blessed things that we have was the promise God made to our father Abraham because he obeyed God and gave these lands to us and guide circumstances over and over completely apart from democracy. Did democracy give us the Louisiana Purchase? Of course not. Napoleon got in trouble and was fighting the wars and wanted some money, so he sold us the better part of 19 states for $15 million. Virtually gave it to us. One big building today costs more than that. One big building here in Charlotte or New York or whatever, and God just gave it to us on a silver platter. Britain had so much of the land. He gave it to us. The Spanish and Mexicans had the Southwest. He gave it to us. They say it's ours now. No, God gave it to us. They don't understand that. The French were in control in Canada. And all of a sudden, through a, bunch of, uh, a lot of unusual circumstances, Britain was given Canada. France, Reuben, had a lot of things first, and then Britain got them. France was normally the birthright nation, Reuben. And they had India. They were the leader in India at first. And then all of a sudden, the tables turned, and Britain got it. Joseph was given those blessings. And around the world, in various nations in Africa, the same way. Over and over again, you see that. God's hand had nothing to do with democracy. And in Britain's case, they didn't even have a democracy. They had a monarchy. But God gave it because of Abraham's obedience. And you, all the families of the earth, shall be blessed. We are through Christ, but we're also been a great blessing to all the other nations of the earth physically. We're the ones that sent the 600 ships to India to keep people from starving. We're the ones that had the Hoover Commission to help bail out Europe after World War I. We're the ones who had the Marshall Plan to bail Europe out again after World War II. Billions of our dollars were over there to help our former enemies in a way other nations would never have done. God gave it to us. So Abraham departed as the Eternal had spoken to him. So what is the lesson here? Abram was willing, God said, you leave your family, you leave your home, you leave everything you have ever known, and you go out to a country you've never been to, you don't know about, and you put your faith and trust in me. And Abraham said, yes, sir, and he did. You find over and over, Abraham never argued with God on these things, except the one time when God was going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham then reasoned to him with him, which God appreciated, trying to have mercy, not for himself, but for others. So Abraham departed. He did it. He did it. Did what God said, as the Eternal had spoken, and took his nephew Lot along with him and helped him, and so on in various ways as we shall uh, see here. So this is the example of Abram. Then you turn to chapter fifteen, and here you find uh, in chapter fifteen that in verse six it says Abram believed in the Eternal. And he counted it to him for righteousness. He believed this promise that he would be a great people because he had that total trust in God. Brethren, in our attitude, in the spirit, in man, 
And the whole approach that we have to whatever part of God's way we want to talk about, whether it's you're loving your wife and being faithful to her or your husband, serving others, training your children, working hard at your job, even submitting to a boss who's not perfect, doesn't make any difference for giving others everything you can do, giving generously to God's church and God's work, laying down your life for your brother, doesn't make any difference. You put your trust in God. If you see that's what God wants, you believe that God is going to make it work out for good and you do it. That's what Abram did. He had that spirit, that attitude. And so he will be the father of the faithful. Then in chapter 22, you find more of that. A powerful example, as all of you know, if you remember that. That's when God tested in verse 1, Abraham and had him be willing to sacrifice his only son, the only legitimate son he had. And when they were on the way to the mountain, then they came to the place, verse 9, which God had told him, and Abraham built an altar, placed the wood in order, and bound Isaac. Everything indicates Isaac was not a little boy. Isaac carried the wood, if you read the earlier verses. He was a big boy, maybe 20 years old again, the Jews that postulate. So what example is this? It's, Isaac was a type of Christ. He probably told Isaac, turn around, son, I'm going to have to tie you up. Wow, I can't imagine that. This boy was so obedient, he said, yes, sir. And Abram lifted him up and put him on the pier of wood and stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his own son. But the angel of the eternal called, and this was Christ, no doubt, the spokesman, the messenger of God, Abraham, Abraham, he said, here am I. And he said, do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything Notice the, the word here. Notice the message. For uh, now I know what? I know that you fear God. God is more important to you. God is more real to you. God is more wonderful to you than anything else in the whole universe. You have an awe of the great God that gives you life and breath and you'll do whatever He says. Whatever He says. If you're willing to take this boy and do this. I've tested your attitude. I've tested your spirit. This was the greatest test that Abraham passed. You fear God since you've not withheld your son, your only son. And then he goes on how he's going to bless him and bless him and bless him and multiply his seed like the stars of heaven. And your descendants shall possess the gates of their enemies and so on. Because he was willing to put his trust in God and say God's way works. God is real. God wants that attitude, that spirit in us. The technicalities are not as important as that attitude. Saying, yes, sir, I will do whatever it is. Once you know it's from God, some false preacher comes along and says, break the commandments, do some bad thing. Yes, check it out. But don't be so willing to argue just to get your own way on the other hand, of course. Then you go back to chapter 13. Genesis 13, and it shows another aspect of Abraham. And uh, he said here in chapter 13, he and Lot, of course, were having to divide from each other. And they had so much. It says in verse 6, the land was not able to support them because God blessed them so much that they might dwell together for possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. They, um, Abraham was a multimillionaire in today's land, uh, money. He had 318 trained servants trained to fight when he went to rescue Lot. What does that tell you? 
he must have had at least a thousand or fifteen people all together following him. A great bunch of small city followed Abraham all around, living in tents. They're all his family, his servants. And there was strife between Abram's servants and Lot's. So Abram said to Lot, here's the, the, the you know, the uncle, the, the main one. Notice the attitude of humility and the attitude, the spirit, the spirit in man, the spirit of giving. God wants us to be givers. Please let there be no strife between you and me and my herdsmen and yours, for we are brethren. The whole land is before you. Separate, you go to the left and I'll go to the right and you choose whatever you want. And Lot chose the best, he thought, the plain. But of course, that's where Sodom and Gomorrah were. So God guided the circumstance, no doubt. And Abraham didn't get what looked so good, but the bad guys were down there and God, God destroyed that whole thing and Lot had to flee to the hill with his daughters. You know the story. A giving spirit, back in Acts 20, verse 35, a beautiful statement, kind of out of context. Paul, years later, quoting something we never read in the gospel. He said, Acts 20, 35, it is more blessed to give. As the Lord said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. That's what Christ said, and we find that later through Paul. A way of giving, a spirit of giving, of helping, outflowing concern, as Mr. Armstrong put it. A spirit that's developed. Those things are not all natural. We have to ask God's help but to have that outflowing concern to help one another, to help the poor, to help our families, to help the church, to help the work, to have outflowing concern for every human being as best we can. I've told you I don't think our main monies that we're giving should be given to help people off in uh, the Middle East or Afghanistan or somewhere. You don't find one example of that in the Bible where they ever took up offerings to help people they never heard from that are way off. But if you have an immediate problem, you help there, and then your main tithes and offerings, and should and God certainly indicates that, should be to help those in the church. Give first to the household of faith, and then others occasionally to the Red Cross or some special need if you have a flood in your community. But we could take every dime that comes into this work, as I've explained. I'm not exaggerating. Most of you know that. Every single dime, send it to India when the people were starving, or the outback, where many are still in trouble, or any other part of the world, Africa now. And would it change anything? No, no. There are hundreds of millions of people dying. They're slaughtering, murdering, raping, beating, torturing one another all through the areas of Eritrea and Darfur and the Congo and elsewhere in Africa. Are you going to solve that by sending some group some money? No. The main thing we need to do is to help prepare for the kingdom of God and help some of those people understand the truth and help all of us do our part and pray thy kingdom come. That's what God wants us to do. So we use wisdom, but we still have outflowing concern and give to those that are near us, that are in the church here. Sometimes our own families in need and we want to help them. And sometimes others are in need that we know and love. And that's not wrong to help those right around us. God wants us to and to help God's work as well. So we have to have that trust in God that his way will work, even the way of giving. Mr. Armstrong used to point out, he said, there are two ways of life, the give way and the get way. Most of you have heard me explain that. And that's true. Most of us have grown up wanting the get way, you know, I want to get the best grades. I want to win the mile and beat the others out or do this or that. We just grow up thinking that because we're taught that by the world. As we're converted, we want to think about how much can we give? 
how much can we give? A lot of you know that I go to the Y. Well, I shouldn't brag about this. I don't mean to because I make so many hundreds of mistakes. Ask my wife. <laughs> but do I go to the Y so I can be big and strong and win the Mr. North Carolina contest or something? <laughs> no, it's too late. <laughs> I go to the Y and I exercise and try to watch my diet and so forth. Some of you say, if I die, well, look what happened to him. Okay, I've already had almost 78 years of life, so you better believe I'm still okay. It worked <laughs> longer than most of you have been alive. So, But anyway, I go to the Y and exercise and do those things because in my heart I can say this. I honestly am not trying to be big and strong anymore. There was a time I wanted to be that way. And back in the North 416 North uh, Moffat and Joplin, I remember taking the Charles Atlas course and the Joe Bonomo course, and I had this big giant crusher grip and some dumbbells, and Charles Atlas didn't just have you do push-ups. He had you put your feet on the bed and then get two chairs, and you did the push-ups go deeper, you know, and you had dynamic tension, and you were going to be big and strong. Of course, I wanted all that. And my mother let me put these pictures. I didn't have girly pictures. She wouldn't let me do that. I'm sure I didn't even ask. I knew better than that. Although I thought about it. <laughs> I was very human, by the way, at one point. <clears throat> I'm inhuman now. Okay. Anyway, I'm kidding. But uh, I had these pictures of strong men. I had pictures of uh, Charles Atlas and uh, Joe uh, Bonomo and, and Johnny Trelazzo and John Grimmick was the one who won Mr. America. So many times they had to then introduce uh, Mr. Universe because Grimmick kept winning Mr. America. He was the early early uh, Arnold-type guy. And then after he won that, well, they didn't introduce any other, but of course Arnold came along and he wins all these contests. Then they have to invent something even beyond Mr. Universe, so they call him Mr. Olympia. And he kept winning that and finally got into movies and got older, so now he's not, he's not entering those contests, but he's the governor and we'd like to be the president. <laughs> Arnold, <laughs> the gov, <laughs> he's something. But anyway, we can have vanity, but we should do a lot of these things. Why? I want to be strong. I would like to have more energy to serve God's people, and God knows that. That's why I'm exercising and eating careful. I want to be able to give my life to God more effectively. And you ought to take care of yourself, you women, not just to look in the mirror and be more pretty, but take reasonable care, not too much care. You're not going to enter some beauty contest, we trust, but so you can be a good example to others. And you men, so you can be a good example to others and support your family and have health and do what God wants you to do in your life. But Mr. Armstrong taught us it's better to give than to receive. The giving way and the getting way. And brethren, we've been going through a lot of scriptures about put your trust in God. That is such a key thing. As I've given you a bunch of examples already that God looks to, and I've told you this, and let me say it again. In fact, I've been rereading Mr. Armstrong's autobiography for the third or fourth time just recently, just, just 20 or 50 pages a week. I haven't finished yet. But it's amazing that one big thing keeps coming through. Mr. Armstrong was a man of faith and courage. And he tells how he got away from God at one time on this clay project. And he says, God will not let anything come between him and you. And if you start looking at anything else except God and put that ahead of God, you're in trouble. No matter what it is, your wife, your husband, your children, your job, your money, doesn't make any difference. That becomes your God. You have got to put your faith and trust in God. 
And Mr. Armstrong had a remarkable degree of faith and being around him thousands of hours, I sensed that. He made mistakes. He'd blow up at people occasionally and he would do this and do that. He thought big and sometimes he would think too big at times and have to back off. You know what I mean? Because he was human. Ted said one time when he was in a good attitude toward his father, he said, well, if God had wanted to call some guy that was really careful all the time and wouldn't spend any money, he wouldn't have called my dad. He said he knew my dad thought big. He knew my dad would try to go on the ABC network and later maybe spend too much here and there and maybe build the house of God. He said, I don't think God was worried about the extra thousands of dollars my dad spent. And that's true. Because all of it was spent doing God's work. He was just trying to do it the best way he thought at the time. He thought big. But in his heart, he tried to put his trust in God right down to his toenails many, many times. And I once not take time to cite all the times he did. Read that first volume of the autobiography. You get a little bit of it there. He was a man who had a profound faith in God. I don't know of any of us today that have that kind of faith. I don't have that kind of faith. I was praying about that again this morning after reading Mr. Armstrong's autobiography. God help me to have more of that faith he had. Help me to have more of the faith that Christ had and Peter had and Paul had. We need that faith. He did have that. That's one reason God trusted him. Did he make mistakes? Yes. Was he human? Yes. But he put his trust in God in a remarkable way. A man who will trust in God wants that. He wants that attitude in your spirit that you will trust in your Creator above everything else. The fear of man brings a snare. You won't worry about what men think. You want to be nice, yes, but your ultimate trust, the one you want to please above all else, is not the fourth floor, it's not me or any of us human leaders, it's not your husband or your wife even, it's God. Put your trust in God. That's a tremendous lesson. Back in James 3 and verse 13, turn back there with me if you would. This is, of course, way back in your New Testament. Now they're near the end. James chapter 3 and beginning in verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done and meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envying, and self-seeking in your hearts, in other words, in your spirit. If you're always trying to say, what can I get out of this? What's the angle? What's the angle? What's going to get me ahead? God does not like that. He wants you to give because you're trying to give. He wants you to obey Him because you want to honor God. He wants you to have that attitude of wholly seeking God and what He wants, not what you want. So if you have bitter envying and self-seeking in your hearts, don't boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. For where envy, people politicking, as we had just before the split, as Mr. Davis will remember and Mr. Aparted, people were politicking and maneuvering and making comments. Where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing that will, will be there. You see, it's awful. But the wisdom that is from above, the right spirit, is pure. You're not trying to play a game. You're not trying to be big and strong or pretty or wear rich clothes to impress others. You just want to do enough to honor God, whatever it is. It's pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, 
full of mercy, good fruits, without partiality, without hypocrisy. Now, the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. These are attitudes. I can't begin to cover them all, but they're all part of the spirit in man and attitudes we should think about in that relationship. Another one we need to think about at this age particularly is described back here in First Samuel. First Samuel, if you would, brethren. And uh, I'm going to be turning here to First Samuel 15. First Samuel 15. And uh, some of you know exactly uh, where I'm going here. And let's begin reading here. Samuel was told, I mean Saul was told, the king to destroy these Amalekites and these bad guys and, and uh, kill the king and everybody else. And he didn't do that. And so God then uh, rebukes Saul about that. And verse 10, the word of the Lord came to Samuel and said, I have set up Saul as king, for he has turned back from following me and has not followed my commandments. And Samuel was a good guy. Samuel was the priest, but he didn't want Saul to suffer. He wasn't trying to overthrow him. He didn't have envy and bitter envy and resentment. It grieved Samuel, and he cried all night. Cried out to God all night, I should say. Then Samuel rose early and went to Saul to deal with him for God. And he comes and hears all these animals. And they were told to destroy the people, destroy all the animals, everybody. And Saul said, they have brought them from the Amalekites for the people spared the best of the sheep. And so he tried to blame it on the people. Say, well, you know, pass the buck. And of course, you know, the human reasoning here. And Saul, Samuel, old man, and Saul's a great, big, strong young man, towered over Samuel, but Samuel said, shut up. <laughs> That's what he said. Be quiet. <laughs> Be quiet. King, you young squirt. Be quiet. I'll tell you what God says. So Samuel said, when you were little in your own eyes, when you were not the head of the tribes of Israel, and did not God anoint you king over Israel? You used to have humility. What happened to you? And the Lord sent you on a mission to destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, until they were consumed. Why did you not obey the voice of the Eternal? Why did you swoop down on the spoil? And again, Saul tried to say, well, it was the people and this and that. And Samuel said, verse 22, Has the ever-living God as great delight in burnt offerings? And sacrifices as in what? Having the right spirit, saying, I will put my trust in God and I will do whatever God says, as in obeying the voice of the ever-living one. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams, for rebellion is as a sin of witchcraft. See, that attitude, that spirit of rebellion and stubbornness as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the ever-living one, he has rejected you from being king. And then Saul said to Samuel, I've sinned. So he finally got him, and he recognized this great old man was God's direct servant, and he sort of halfway repented, but not really. For I've transgressed the commandment, because I feared, notice, I feared the people and obeyed their voice. He did not fear God. The fear of God, the awe of the great creator and governor whose voice shakes the earth and who comes across the earth like rolling thunder. He is the one to fear. He is the one to trust, not human beings. And as these events speed up in the world today, we're going to have to really have to learn that lesson and really do that. Notice back in Psalm 33, brethren, if you would, Psalm 
chapter 33 and beginning here in uh, verse 10. The eternal brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He makes the plans of the peoples of no effect. The counsel of the eternal stands forever, the plans of the heart of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the eternal and the people whom he has chosen as his own inheritance. You see, if they look to him, the eternal looks down from heaven. He sees all the sons of men from the place of his habitation, way up above, billions of miles up, perhaps. He looks down on the inhabitants of the earth. He fashions their hearts individually. Think about that. He's trying to fashion our, what? Our spirits, our attitudes, our hearts. He's fashioning us individually. As you and I get down in the morning, hopefully before anything can interrupt us, and we start praying and saying, Father, help me. Rebuke and chasten me as you wish and as you know is best. Teach me, guide me, lead me in your way, and you really mean it. And then you study this word and see how God wants you to live. Then he fashions you, he works with you, he knocks the rough edges off of me, he knocks the rough edges off of you year by year. He isn't finished with any of us yet, I guess. We've got a ways to go, <laughs> but he's working with us. He's fashioning us individually, and that's so important. He says in verse 20, our soul waits for the eternal. He is our help and our shield, for our heart shall rejoice in him, because we have trusted, there again, put your trust in God. We have trusted in his holy name. Let your mercy, O eternal, be upon us, just as we hope in you. These are the lessons that we've got to learn, brethren, to put our total faith and trust in God and have an attitude of total surrender to our Creator. Notice now in Luke chapter 22, if you would, Luke, near the end of Jesus' life, this last night, he'd been talking to the disciples and so on, and so they then came on out from the last Passover, some of these discussions. And verse 39, Luke 22, verse 39 Coming out, he went to the Mount of Olives, as he was accustomed, and his disciples followed him. And he came to the place, and he said to them, Pray that you do not enter into temptation. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed. So Christ knelt down. We find other accounts. Fell on the ground sometimes, just flat on his face on the ground. Father, if it is your will, remove this cup, the hemlock cup, where they commit suicide that way. It's a symbol of, of death. Remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Here's the one who had existed with the Father for all eternity and glory and majesty, surrounded by hundreds of millions of angels and everything you can think of, and he emptied himself to come here, let men kick him, stop him, make fun of him, punch him in the face when he had a hood over him, say, if you're the Son of God, prophesy, ha, 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 so on. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross. Ha, ha, ha. Made fun of him over and over again. Tortured him. Beat him to a pulp. He knew all that was going to happen. He had human flesh. He cringed humanly. Because he was tempted in all points like as we are. Hebrews 4, verse 15. He was tempted. It was a trial to him. It was a real trial. And so he cried out, Remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And he really meant it. You see, that attitude is the attitude God wants from me. He wants it from you. He wants it from every single human being who will be in his family. 
and his kingdom and bear his name. He does not want people in there playing games. He doesn't want people like Saul to compromise. Say, well, I killed part of the animals, but the other animals I didn't and so on. He doesn't want compromisers. He doesn't want people that are lukewarm and do things part way. He doesn't want people that sin a little bit. He wants us, if we make a mistake, to bitterly repent, but the rest of the time wholeheartedly go all the way, all the way and have a passion, a passion for the great God like King David did. And so an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him and being in an agony. See, he was wholehearted. He prayed more earnestly and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. He prayed so fervently that apparently the blood vessels burst and went through and into the sweat glands as some scientists have said this can happen and has happened in other instances of unusual terror and so on and stress. He cried out with all of his being. That attitude was perfectly shown by Jesus Christ throughout his whole life. And here especially, not my will, but yours be done. In closing, let's turn back to Hebrews chapter 12, brethren. Hebrews chapter 12, if you would. Here, we find that Paul is talking about the great power of God. And he says in verse 18, You have not come to the mountain like ancient Israel that might be touched and burned with fire. Boy, God showed his power to them back there. They were carnal. They had to have that. And to blackness and darkness and tempest and the sound of the trumpet that got louder and louder. So they were terrified. And Moses said, I'm exceedingly afraid and trembling. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels. We're going to interact with angels. They will be our servants and we'll see them and send them here and send them there. It's going to be an exciting world, an opportunity to help reconstruct this whole world, this whole earth, and later perhaps the whole universe, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven. You come to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits. We have a human spirit. And you, my brethren, Paul says, God says, are going to come if you make it in that resurrection by going all out and having the right spirit of total surrender. You will come to the spirits, the human spirits, the attitudes, join with God's spirit, to the spirit, the spirit beings as it will be, the spirits of just men made perfect. He fashions us, he molds us, He works with us. He fashions us individually all of our lives. He's trying to make our human spirit be like His spirit. So we will never cause trouble. We will never talk back. We will never compromise. We will never be political. We will never try to play funny games. We will never rebel against Him like Satan did, and so on. The spirits of just men made perfect, and you've come to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better than that of Abel, see that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if they had did not escape, who refused him who spoke on earth, how much more shall we not escape if we turn from him who speaks from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth, the whole area around that was shaking with local earthquake. Yet he says once more, I shake not only heaven, not only the earth, but heaven. So God is going to shake people and wake them up, and you should pray that God will shake you 
You should, each one of you. And I should pray that God will shake me and help us and shake us and bring us to reality when we start to drift away like David did briefly and fashion and mold us and help us to have a right spirit that we can be in the resurrection and interact with Abraham, the father of the faithful, and with Moses and with David and with the spirits of just men made perfect down through all eternity and be not just in the kingdom and in personal kingdom, but the very family. It's a family relationship because we will be sons of God and bear the name God forever.